It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. Bunch of emails that I wanted to talk about. Uh, kind of all in one, a lot of unorganizing. And a couple of Starbucks workers saying, hey, look, you know, we've been organizing. We've been fighting the good fight. Uh, we need labor law reform to help us get this first contract. A uh, bunch of people at, at, at Amazon kind of saying the same thing. Because we talked about the other day about the UAW uh, going on this, this big organizing campaign uh, at 11 of the other car, car manufacturers. You know, if they were to be successful and organize all of their targets, it would literally double the size of the auto workers uh, membership in in auto work uh, might actually bring some power back to the industry. And I talked about, you know, conditions in an industry getting better. So I had a, I spent a lot of time answering emails because I said, look, when you de-unionize an industry, when the union density falls, conditions get worse, wages get worse, benefits get worse, your opportunities get worse. And you know, conversely, when you have growing union density, things get better. And this is one of the things we talked about during the UAW strike when we were walking on the picket line with folks saying, look, they understood the power that their union had, you know, years ago when that job was the gold standard of the American working class. Now it's fallen down into, well, it's, it's just a job. And their goal, their, their push was to make it that gold standard job once again. But for me, I come back to the reality that we need to in, we need to enact better legislation. And this comes back to voting. And this is why, you know, one of the things I talk about quite often is the distraction that our mainstream corporate controlled media keeps throwing at us. You know, the horse race of the day, you know, whatever the, the divisive outrage candy issue is, that's what they all focus on. Don't ever hear much about how the pendulum has swung to the side of employers and away from workers to where the power is in the hands of the moneyed interest and not the people who actually make the money for the moneyed interests. You know, so for me, you know, I wanted to I wanted to start today off with with a reality check. You know, your vote, and this is what my grandparents understood. Your vote should be more about kitchen table economic issues than about all of the other stuff that's used to divide us. And I talk about this quite frequently. And I said, look, you know, for me, the woman that Biden put in charge of the NLRB is enough for me to vote for Joe Biden again, because what she's been able to do is help move us towards a direction that's going to make lives better. That's the important stuff. I don't care who goes to what bathroom. I don't care if you dress one way or another. None of that's of any concern. What is a concern is that working people get a fair shake. And we used to have that. We used to be somewhat near the same bit of ideas, of thoughts. We had some common ideas. And I argue that's because we were heavily unionized. People in the workplace had the, the, same, the same wants, the same needs, the same goals. And they were fighting for things to make lives better. They weren't fighting over nonsense. And that's where we are in this moment. And my hope is in the new year, we continue the organizing that's going on. You continue the militancy of workers saying, hey, we want better wages, hours, conditions. We want better opportunities. But more importantly, that we go to the voting booth and we think about economic issues. And we think about them from a working class perspective, not from the corporation's perspective, not from, oh, gee, you know, if, if those workers make an extra 30 cents an hour, it's going to raise the price of a cheeseburger. But think about it. How are we going to make lives better for working people? All of that is important. So for everyone who sent emails, I appreciate it. I did get to all of them. And I do answer all emails personally. If you want to email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. That's where you go uh, to get a hold of me. I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear your hope, your dreams. And take a quick break. When we come back, Stephen Greenhouse labor reporter going to be here also the author of beaten down worked up the past present and future of american labor right back after this with stephen greenhouse
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1995. That was the day machinists at Boeing ended their 69-day strike. 33,000 workers won increased pay and health benefits. They also won job protections against subcontracting. Contractual clauses against subcontracting were important, especially given the fact that NAFTA had just been passed two years earlier. The contract specified that the union be given three months' notice regarding any plans to subcontract out work. It also incentivized keeping work in-house by calling for increased benefits to laid-off workers and mandatory retraining and re-employment of workers displaced by subcontracting. These provisions came after IAM members rejected two previous contract offers. They were furious at the initial demands for concessions, even as Boeing executives were awarded multi-million dollar stock options. At the time, the IAM and its members lauded this as a total victory. For a few years, Boeing abided by the contract they signed. Subsequently, Boeing bosses have routinely violated their agreements. Many of these provisions were lost in the 2002 contract and then recaptured in 2008. But the next contract negotiations witnessed a renewed fight for job security. Over the past two decades, Boeing workers have seen massive layoffs, subcontracting, pension freezes and phase-outs, and relocation of their work. All while the company rakes in billions of dollars in profits, gets lucrative tax breaks and subsidies, and has close to 5,000 back orders for planes. Subcontracting clauses are important, but can only work when they are enforced. Victories like the winning strike in 1995 can serve as a reminder for workers today that if they stand together in solidarity, they can win better wages, hours, and conditions at the bargaining table. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So an interesting year it has been. Lots, as we've been talking about on the program, lots of labor activism. Some really great stories this year from the UPS workers winning a very big contract to the UAW folks on the strike that they did fairly well on, uh, to the new organizing at Starbucks and at Amazon and all of the, all of the, the, you know, the, just the, the excitement around maybe we got a chance to recreate the most prosperous working class in history like our grandparents' generation were able to pull off. And here to share some thoughts on, well, you know, what kind of a year was it? I've asked our good friend Stephen Greenhouse to come talk with us. Stephen's a labor journalist, former New York Times reporter, author of numerous books, the most recent, beaten down, worked up, the past, present, and future of American labor. Stephen, thanks for taking time for us. Good to be here. So I agree with you, you know, 100%. It was a big year for labor. Uh, I was just discussing this with a few people. I think it was like the most exciting, most ferment in labor of any time, certainly over the past 25 years. You know, there, you know, as you know, the, the UAW strike, the, you know, 150,000 actors walked out, you know, 16,000 Hollywood writers, 85,000 Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente workers. Uh, the the UPS the Teamsters victory at UPS three hundred forty thousand workers threatening to go on strike which would have been you know one of the biggest strikes in decades and they got a, a terrific contract so they didn't go on strike but that's you know a lot of workers in action a lot of mobilization uh, you know there are strikes by nurses strikes by teachers strikes by school workers so just you know this is you know I think this is the most workers are on strike in a long time yes in two thousand eighteen there were the huge teacher strikes. In, in, in West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, you know, that was public sector. But in the private sector, this was really, you know, the most militancy I've seen probably in my lifetime. We're certainly, you know, going back to the 1970s when inflation was soaring, there was a lot of ferment then as, as workers were demanding wage, wages to keep up with inflation. And and another huge thing, Rick, is that, you know, the some of the settlements were just eye-popping, were terrific. You know, um, the auto workers won a 25% raise over over four years, including a 68% increase in the starting wage. The Teamsters at UPS won raises of $7.50 an hour. You know, that's more than the minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. And, and, and uh, you know, 48% uh, 48 pay increase on average for part-time workers. 
at at UPS and UPS drivers will be earning $49 an hour at at you know, American Airlines workers want a 46% pay increase so it's been you know a total you know bang up year for labor and I, and and the big question now is whether labor can keep up the momentum and build on its successes in 2024. Yeah, well while those numbers are are good you know the sad reality is we were talking decades of wage stagnation uh, that that kind of put us in this situation. I look at the industry that I've spent my entire working career in, that is uh, the LTL trucking industry. And over the last 20, 25 years, all you have seen is, you know, nickel dime raises, you know, 30, 40 cents here. This contract, 350 the first hour, 75 cents over the next four years. That's the biggest, the best that the, uh, the, the master freight agreement companies have seen in, in, in a couple of decades. Uh, so I'm I'm guardedly optimistic of what the future can bring us, but the sad reality is is these are a lot of legacy unions that are are making these gains. Uh, the new the new organizing we've seen a lot of excitement, we just haven't seen a lot of contracts. Uh, absolutely. So the two thoughts, Rick. So one, I, I wrote this big article for the Guardian saying uh, the the contracts won at at UPS, Kaiser, Hollywood, uh, Detroit automakers, kind of. They're great record contracts. And I call it the great reset. You know, as you said, a lot of workers face stagnant wages, you know, minuscule wage increases for years, even decades. And I think come the pandemic, come all these workers, you know, literally risking their lives going to work while the stock market continued to boom. They said, you know, we're fed up, we're not going to take it anymore. And they demanded real increases. And and that anger and the tight labor market and the pro-union president and and you know public approval for unions being the strongest it's been since the 1960s you know so workers really had the wind behind them when they went on strike and they won these great contracts and i think workers are kind of resetting their expectations that we don't want just one and two percent a year we really want real increases and i think they're forcing companies to realize we just can't offer peanuts. We just can't offer two and three percent a year that doesn't keep up with inflation. And I think a lot of companies, yeah. you know, have coughed up raises of five and 10 percent. So no, no but you're again, the question is whether we can carry that forward. And the second part is, on the one hand, these established unions at UPS, uh, Hollywood, you know, GM, Ford have done great. But these new unions at Starbucks, Amazon, REI, Trader Joe's, Apple, Chipotle, you know, they want, you know, they voted to unionize 16, 18, 24 months ago, and none of them have a first contract. And that's a real problem. And if you know, we want the union movement to grow, it's extremely important that these new unions made up of these idealistic young workers get contracts that deliver, that provide good raises and benefits and improve, you know, working conditions. And and that to me is really the big Ways the biggest challenge for labor in 2024 to really finally get contracts at, at those companies, especially Starbucks, because no, no, no the, you're you absolutely know, right. And this yeah, again, this I go back to this is the failure of uh, of Democrats over the years to get labor law passed. Uh, I voted for Barack Obama. You know, I met the man twice, shook his hand twice. Twice he told me we were getting something better than the Employee Free Choice Act, which would have given us a pathway to getting that first contract. And unfortunately, we got we got nothing. I mean, you go back to the Carter years. They promised we were going to you know, do something with Taft-Hartley. That didn't happen. I voted for Clinton for the reason that we were going to get strike replacement. Bob Dole filibustered that. We didn't get it. Uh, yeah, same exactly. thing with Obama. We were going to get uh, something better than EFCA. Nothing. I, so all I of these things, all these things have, you know, that's that's been a problem. Yeah, I, I just said in part, Rick, yes. You know, it was on the Democrats' watch that the Democrats were unable to enact this, but it's really not their fault. I mean, they they tried. You know, the Republicans blocked it. Corporations blocked it. You know, yes, you know, for a few moments uh, under Obama, there were 60 Democrats in the Senate. You know, uh, Teddy Kennedy died. You know, they, you know, they only had 60, 60 senators for a very short time, which would have enabled them to overcome Republicans filibuster. But there were some conservative Democrats in Arkansas, you know, who were influenced by yeah. conservative money in the Waltons. They're like, they're not pro-labor. So I think Obama wanted to pass the Employee Free Choice Act. And he tried. Yeah, I agree. He probably could have fought harder for it. But, you know, blame the corporations. Don't blame Democrats. Blame it's It's, you know, not a single Republican supported the Employee Free Choice Act. So don't blame the Democrats. The problem is we have this messed up political system where corporations have a humongous amount of power and then the 
map of the Senate is rigged, you know, because, you know, states with, you know, 5% of the of, of the population of California has have as many senators and and uh it's hard to overcome a Republican filibuster to pass progressive legislation. You know, as I've written in my book, you know, five five or six democratic presidents have tried to enact pro union legislation to make it easier to unionize to punish companies for really punish companies uh when they break the law in fighting unions. You know, President Johnson, President Carter, President Clinton, President Obama, President Biden have all sought to enact pro-union legislation. Um, and they just didn't have the 60 votes because the Republicans who kind of, you know, as you know better than I, you know, carry carry corporate America's water, block it every every time. You know, Jimmy Carter tried very, very hard. You know, the, the, I remember writing, is one of my first years as a daily journalist, you know, Carter pushed very hard to, to enact pro-union legislation to really create some penalties against corporations where they break the law and fighting unions. And Bob Dole defeated it in the Senate. So like people want to blame Carter, but it's really, it's really the Republicans' fault. I mean, Carter wished he were a magician and could have pulled it off, but he, you know, he wasn't. Yeah. No, no, no. And I put this out there just for you to be able to to say yeah. that because look, I, I come back with the following uh Republicans hate working people. Look at what they do. Uh every time we there is something that could help. Uh, they stand in the way. And the Senate seems to be where, where good ideas and progress go to die. But this, again, is, is I don't think gets enough attention when you're talking to working people. Because I get this all the time. Well, you know, Obama, you know, you know Afka. And I, no, we didn't get it. And I wish he would have pushed harder. I wish we would have done what Republicans do, which is, you know, when did Kentucky pass right to work? Uh, it was 9 a.m. on the day before they were supposed to be at work. They came in early to do the work. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, for me, it's that kind of stuff. I I agree. I mean, you know, who is blocking an increase in who's been in, blocking an increase in minimum wage for more than 10 years? The Democrats want to raise the minimum wage that Republicans are opposed. You know, who, you know, under Biden, they passed this wonderful, you know, child care tax credit that that gave thousands of dollars a year to all these working class lower middle class families. And it was the Republicans who insisted taking that away. And and you know, and politically that was smart for them because now, you know, if they if they kept that, all these people would say, boy, Biden is great. He gave us this extra money. And 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 Republicans know how to take away things uh that, you know, good things that Democrats do because they don't want the government getting credit. And Republicans don't get blamed for taking away these things because they have a better PR machine than the Democrats. Oh boy, do they <laughs> that is absolutely true. But, you know, here's the thing. And, and I, I come back to uh, the moment that we're in. Uh, sadly, our laws are so badly antiquated, uh, ossified, broken, whatever words you want to use. Uh, the pendulum has swung way too far to corporate uh, power because, you know, not firing someone, not harassing, not intimidating, not doing all of the things that corporate America has been doing for decades is almost like, you know, it, it, it's like malpractice. If, if one of these union busters doesn't tell the companies to break a, break the law, it's almost malpractice because the penalties are so minuscule and the payoff. Well, you know, it, it's 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 good for corporations that it's good for their bottom line. Yeah. So I, I just wrote this big piece that will come out soon in the New Republic where I examine why, you know, now more than two years after workers at Starbucks first unionized, more than 18 months after workers at 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 uh, REI and Amazon first unionized more than a year after workers at at Trader Joe's and Apple first unionized they still don't have a first contract and the National Labor Relations Board has accused Starbucks of failing to bargain in good faith at more than two hundred of its stores and you know corporations you know if they're found guilty of not bargaining in good faith they can't be fined even one penny you know, they just slapped on the wrist and said you've been naughty go back and bargain in good faith this time around and and I'm sure the the you know the the lawyers the the corporate lawyers who are making a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars an hour whisper to their clients you don't really have to bargain in good faith you know if you you know don't bargain all that will happen is they'll come back and slap your wrist again so Jennifer Bruzzo the you know the uh, very shrewd canny general counsel of the NLRB is trying to get the labor board to vote a new rule saying that you know if an employer violates the law and doesn't bargain in good faith. It has to make the workers whole. So if the workers experience 15%, lost 15% of the wages over the last two years because of inflation, then you know have the labor board order 
the employers to pay 15% raises to make the workers whole. Then, you know, if we had a rule like that, uh, the nation's employers would, you know, would, would snap to attention and realize we can't drag things out two or three years to get a contract. We better do it soon because it's going to cost us too much uh, to make workers whole. Yeah. So it would be very interesting if the Labor Board adopts this uh, recommendation from Jennifer Abruzzo. Well, it would be great to see that. But even still, I mean, even if you did have a penalty like that, there are some employers. And I, I look at Howard Schultz. I don't think there's any amount of money or penalty that's going to make him uh, obey the law in this moment. Because, look, right now, the only penalty is, uh, well, you have to post the dreaded I won't do it again until I get caught next time notice uh, that they post and means nothing. There's no, there's nobody going to jail. There's nobody losing anything. Uh, so all it is is, well, we keep pushing off uh, workers' rights to organize even further down the road, and we end up where we are, where a lot of people want to join unions. I get responses from people all the time, and I'm sure you do too. That said, you know, wow, I would love, I would love to have a union in my workplace. And you go, well, hey, here's a union that represents your your industry. Oh no, I, that, I don't, I can't, I can't risk that. And that's the problem of where we are in this country. A lot of people want to join and form unions, want to fight for better wages, hours, conditions, want better opportunities for themselves, their families, their kids. But you know, this this initial step, uh, corporate America has made way too costly. Yeah, I mean, so, so Starbucks has mounted, again, as you know better than I, arguably the most ferocious, biggest anti-union campaign, maybe since J.P. Stevens in the 1960s and 70s. And and uh, Starbucks and Howard Schultz insist we haven't broken the law even once in fighting against the union. There have been 44 judicial decisions finding that Starbucks has broken the law. Starbucks says we haven't fired a single worker illegally for supporting the union. Again, various judges have found that Starbucks has fired at least 36 uh, baristas in retaliation for forming a union. And, and, and Starbucks can't be fined even one penny for illegally firing a worker. One of the crazy things is, you know, when a worker gets fired from, you know, her or his job, it really messes up their life. You know, they might lose their car, they might lose their apartment. And, and you know, if a, but for the company, if you're found guilty of illegally firing someone, you're not fined even a penny. So, you know, that's why, you know, Rick, I totally agree with you that the labor laws are way too weak. And when the great Franklin Roosevelt pushed to enact the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, giving American workers a federally protected right to form a union, you know, to get to get very conservative and often racist Democratic senators in the South to go along, they wanted to take the teeth out of the law so you really couldn't fine companies. And, and one Democratic president after another has tried to strengthen the law and, you know, it's not their fault, it's corporations, Republicans that have blocked it. And that's why the law unfortunately remains so yeah. pathetically weak. Uh, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, before I let you go, I got I to gotta ask you about the, the historic announcement with the AFL-CIO and Microsoft. They're saying, uh, you know, this is an historic agreement that uh, uh, there's a, a tech labor uh, partnership happening. Uh, there's going to be a, a neutrality agreement for Microsoft, uh, I guess, the gaming workers that came out of this. But I want to get your thought on the AI part of this. Uh, because, right. you know, having labor have some say in how, you know, these tech companies maybe roll out AI in the workplace. Uh, are, do you have any, any, any thoughts, any suspicions, any, any, any word? Yes. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm actually writing a story on that too. And saying, you know, I've been looking at unions in, in Germany and Norway where they really won some important protections about AI, limiting how much it, it can violate your privacy, limiting you know, the ability of management to fire a worker because AI says this or found this or that about you. And I'm saying, you know, American workers, American unions have a lot to learn from Europe. And the good news, Rick, is American unions are waking up and realizing that AI can really suck for workers. And the communication, and I was interviewing some people at the Communication Workers of America, and they're very smart about this. And they say, you know, the invasion of privacy can be terrible. You know, it's, it's you know, as, as happens at Amazon, you know, sometimes workers get fired because the algorithm said you haven't been doing 8,000 an hour. You got to, you know, you've only been doing 7,200. And, 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 and the communication workers are saying, you know, we don't want anyone to be able to be fired by a machine, by an algorithm. You know, we need some human beings involved. So, you know, American unions are getting smart to this and they're trying to do something about it. And I agree with you, Rick, disagreeing with Microsoft. 
is not earth shattering, but it's a first step where unions are moving towards trying to get corporate America to do more to protect workers when it comes to AI. But you know, as as you know very well, uh, corporations don't roll over over these things. You got to pressure you got to pressure them. But you know, unions are increasingly getting wise to this, and they're trying to to gear up. No, it's, it's, I'm not so much worried about AI firing me. I'm worried about them completely replacing us, uh, which, you know, down the road is, is sadly a, a potential reality. In fact, what I think the writers strike and the actors, Screen Actors Guild strike, a big portion was really about. Uh, will the technology of the future replace people? And, you know, the actors were saying that they wanted to take a day's pay for your image and use it in perpetuity. Uh, there, there's some problems there. Uh Absolutely, but they they won pretty good protection. They did, you know. I mean, it was a the, both the strikes were really long, and and it looked as if the unions were going to lose. But the unions really won those strikes. I mean, management really kind of caved on a lot of the important things. Yeah, and and, and they promised to you know place certain limitations on the use of AI to replace actors, and 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 you know they wouldn't have AI writing scripts, you know, maybe AI might be used to help writers, but they're not going to have AI write the scripts themselves. So, you know, that was a very good example where unions kind of said AI is dangerous for us. It could take away our jobs and we're going to stand up and fight it. And, and Hollywood kind of, you know, gave the unions a lot of what they wanted. Now, you know, there aren't many unionized tech workers in the United States, right? And, and one of the biggest threats, of AI is take away white collar jobs and you know software jobs. So, I think one of the reasons we're seeing more white, you know, more tech worker interest in unions is because they're scared yeah. of the effect of AI. And 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 they they are right to do that. And and reality is what it is. But Stephen, I appreciate the time. Uh, a final word for the new year. What any, any thoughts coming coming into the new year? Uh, I think workers are really pretty jazz because of the victories at, 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 you know, with the Detroit automakers and with UPS and a Kaiser Permanente in Hollywood. So, you know, and, and workers saw that they won these great contracts and they're saying, me too, we want great contracts too. We're not going to settle for 3%. We want 20%. Yep. And, and, and that, and the anger at Starbucks, the workers say, this is crazy. We got to get a contract. So, you know, there'll be a lot of ferment with labor. I think there'll be some good things and, There'll probably be some frustrating things too, but hopefully <laughs> there won't be uh, tons of frustrating things. And I look forward to having you back in the new year to, to talk about what's going on and keep us up to date. Stephen Greenhouse, appreciate the time. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Happy holidays to you and your audience. I appreciate it. Our good friend, Stephen Greenhouse. Make sure you check out the work that he does. Uh, just amazing, amazing labor reporter. Let's take a quick break. Back with your thoughts. Stick around and listen to The Rick Smith Show. We're working people. Come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1971. That was the day that Namibian workers began a general strike to protest the contract labor system. As a colony of South Africa until 1990, Namibia faced many of the same apartheid-like measures that blacks faced in South Africa. Black migrant workers in Namibia comprised the majority of workers in the diamond mines, fisheries, and commercial farms. They were forced to live in the northern third of the country and were subjected to the past system. The past system determined where they could live and work and when they could travel. Restrictions on their rights as workers were directly tied to restrictions they experienced as colonial subjects. Because there were no trade unions at the time, this strike is considered to be an important first step in the 20-year fight for independence. More than 13,500 black contract workers participated, effectively shutting down 23 key workplaces and 11 mines. The indigenous Ovambo and Kavango workers demanded the right to choose jobs and contracts to bring their families to distant work locations, a new pass system, and increased wages based on work type, not skin color. In her book, Labor and Democracy in Namibia, Gretchen Bauer says that while workers did win wage increases, the pass system remained largely intact. 
Employers were angry that workers now had the right to bid on jobs, quit at will, and receive holiday bonuses and leave pay. Workers were upset that they were still subjected to restrictions of movement and arbitrary arrest and detention. But the strike began the long process of eroding the past system, contract labor, and second-class citizenship for the indigenous workers of Namibia. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Smith Show, where working people come to talk. So 2023 has been, an, well, an interesting year. Uh, the uh, the stories that we followed, especially on the labor front, have been uh, great. You know, lots of militancy, lots of activism. But how have we done on the regulatory side? I look at, at OSHA, and it's being reported that they haven't, they haven't done anything this year Uh, to expand the regulatory oversight to protect workers even more and here to share some thoughts on maybe why that is maybe maybe this is something in the future i've asked our good friend jordan barab to come talk with us jordan is the former acting assistant secretary and deputy assistant secretary of labor for osha during the obama years also four years as a worker for the house of representatives 16 years uh, a friend of AFSME. uh jordan thanks for taking time for us yeah, good to be here, Rick. So uh, you've got this blog piece over at your your website uh, that says, "Hey, we haven't uh, we haven't issued any any regulatory standards uh, in OSHA under OSHA during the the Biden years. Uh, why is that?" Well, you know, OSHA's job basically is to set standards that employers have to comply with and to enforce those standards. And it is very difficult for OSHA to, to issue standards these days. It takes it can take 10, 15, 20 years, you know, to issue a major standard. Now that's partly because it takes OSHA a long time, partly because uh, in between those years, there's often Republican administrations uh, who don't do any work on standards. So when you know when 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 Democrats are in control, that's the only time standards happen. And it's imperative that OSHA, you know, really focus on that because again, it does take a long time and it's a lot of work, and only Democrats do it. Um, and it, it can kind of be, as somebody once, uh, once described it, it's kind of the difference between footprints in the sand, which can be washed away by the next administrations, and footprints in concrete. It's very hard once OSHA issues a final standard uh, to get rid of it. So it's, it's absolutely imperative that, that Democrats, you know, and Democratic administrations really focus on that. Um, unfortunately, uh, during this first Biden term, uh, OSHA will have issued no major health and safety standards. Um, and that is kind of tragic, um, um, because, you know, who knows what will happen in the next four years, what they've done and what they figured that the logic is that they would, uh, get a bunch of standards, uh, up to the point of, uh, proposals where you can, you know, which is kind of the final stage before a final. And then in the next term, they'd be ready to issue all of these, uh, you know, which makes sense if you're guaranteed two terms, but of course that doesn't always happen. So you've got these things that OSHA is working on, they're working on, for example, a heat standard. Now that was rel- a relatively recent uh, start. And so that, you know, in the, under the best of terms, that won't be done for a few years. Um, workplace violence, which they've been working on since 2016, that could have been finished. They're working on also on a comprehensive infectious disease uh, standard, which, which uh, you know, could have been finished. There had been a lot of work done on that already. Um, so what, you know, unfortunately, yeah. So they'll they'll get make progress on all of those. I don't even know if they'll come out with proposals. Probably not. Um, but in the meanwhile, you know, you 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 we're basically OSHA's in the position of praying that there will be a second Biden administration. You know, where they can finish uh, these important standards. Uh, if there's not, you know, it'll be another four, eight, whatever, how many years, uh, or decades until you know these things get finished and workers actually enjoy the protections that these these standards can offer. Yeah, but, you know, is, uh, this isn't, you know, I, I know my Republican friends are going to say, but Jordan, these are all job killers. These are job killing regulations you're talking about. OSHA just, it's 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 unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, um, you know, what, whatever studies have been done about OSHA standards over the last 50 years have shown just the opposite. Uh, they actually increase business efficiency because, quite frankly, in the long run, it's not very efficient uh, for businesses when their workers are getting sick and, and getting killed. Um, and it actually, a lot of these standards actually increase the efficiency because these operations, uh, companies operate a, a lot more efficiently um, when they have actual standards that they have to comply with. 
Um, so there's never been any evidence that any of these OSHA regulations are job killers um, or that they are harmful to businesses. Quite on the contrary. Any chance um, and that's not, not aside from the economics, of course, they save lives. So that's that's the bottom line here. Any chance this comes out in the coming year? Look, 2024 is going to be an election year. Uh, I don't know that these are the the sexy kind of things that that people go other than me go to the voting booth to, to vote on. Uh, any chance that, you know, early part of the year, the spring of 2024, this stuff comes rolling out because it didn't happen in 20 spring of 23 or, or fall of 23. Yeah, well, any chance? there won't be any there won't be any major uh, health and safety standards issued in 20, you know, and uh, probably next year um, or the end of this year. Well, this year's almost over, but the beginning of next year. And sometimes also when it gets close to an election, the White House gets very nervous about anybody issuing new regulations. So things will slow down, if anything. Um, but I do want to say there is one good regulation that OSHA um, uh, uh, may very well issue um, early next year. And I'm, I'm there's a distinguishing here between a standard, which is a health and safety standard like heat or workplace violence and a regulation which is more procedural. Uh, OSHA can do regulations a lot faster than standards for a variety of reasons. One of them that may be coming out um, early next year, hopefully, is it deals with walk-around representatives. You know, OSHA gives uh, 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 workers uh, the opportunity to walk around with OSHA inspectors when they come on an inspection, which is very important. But the way the law was originally interpreted, um, that that um, right really only accrues to workers who are represented by unions, right? right. Um, and these days, obviously, you don't have quite as many union employers around as you did 50 years ago when the Occupational Safety and Health Act was issued. Um, so, you know, we started a process when we were there under the Obama administration where we would allow workers uh, or basically re reinterpreted um, the interpretation of, of that part of the law, um, where we were clarified essentially that it doesn't have to be, a, you know, you don't have to be represented by a union to have a walk around representative. If you have a workers' rights group that you've been working with, or even a union that 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 is, you know, that is, uh, you know, represents workers in your in your um, uh, occupation, um, you can actually workers can actually ask them to be their representatives for the walk around. Um, the Bush, the Trump administration got rid of that. The courts said that OSHA can't just do that through a reinterpretation. They have to actually, you know, do notice and comment rulemaking where they issue a proposal and their comments on it and that type of thing. And that's what OSHA has actually been doing uh, for the last couple of years. And they actually finally issued a proposal uh, last month um, that, um, or a couple of months ago, that would um, uh, broaden the interpretation of allowing walk-around representatives to workers who are not represented by unions. And that very well. Uh, may be issued early next year and would be a, a major um, benefit for uh, for workers everywhere, both unionized and non-unionized workers. Um, and, and again, OSHA has the benefit of being able to issue these kind of regulations a lot faster than they can a, an actual health and safety standard. So that's yeah. that's something good, and that we can expect hopefully in the next the early part of next year. Well, that's something. But here's the thing, and this is where, and I hate that it's like this. I really do, because you think OSHA and protecting workers and safe workplaces should be nonpartisan, but politically, this really does matter who is in the White House. It's the same thing I say about, you know, the NLRB or any of the Department of Labor uh, agencies that it really, do, or any other regulatory agency, it really does matter. And as you write in your piece, uh, you, know, for, you know, the idea, uh, how did you put it? Um, and by nothing, I mean that it's almost certain that OSHA will uh, issue no major final health or safety standards during the entire first time of the first term of the Biden administration, which will be catastrophic if there's no second term. But you say catastrophic because Republicans these days don't do OSHA standards, and and I think that's I think that's the point. They don't they don't do this stuff. No, uh, they destroy them. Yeah. And that's that, interestingly, that's something relatively new. I mean, if you look back at the Reagan administration and the Bush one administration, they did issue a lot of standards. Um, they, you know, there, there was kind of a bipartisan agreement uh, back then that uh, workers needed protection and OSHA was an important agency to do that. Now, they, you know, they, they weren't that aggressive in terms of uh, enforcement and that type of thing. The standards weren't as good as they could have been. Um, they weren't great times, but they did issue standards. They did believe in the in the the, the purpose of, of the occupational safety and health administration and the role of government in protecting uh, workers' lives and safety and health. Um, so that, and now what you're seeing, you know, as we go through these, um, you know, we're obviously we're all going through these kind of this whole budget trauma uh, now, you know, first the debt limit, and then, you know, we got close to a shutdown. And now, you know, God knows what's happening with the budget. Well, what's happening in the House, and this doesn't rise to the surface for anyone who's not looking, uh, but there have been all kinds of proposals from Republicans that have actually been getting into the legislation to basically defund OSHA, to kill the entire agency. 
Um, some, and then there is another, uh, you know, a legislator who wants to um, uh, uh, defund, basically take away the salary of the assistant secretary, both in MSHA, which covers mine safety and OSHA, and reduce their salaries to $1 because they don't like what OSHA has been doing. So um, there's been another proposal that was in the debt limit debate that, that would um, require Congress to approve every single standard and regulation issued in the federal government, right? So that would mean OSHA could work 20, 20 years like it did on, on a silica standard, which would save hundreds of lives a year. And just by not doing anything, Congress would essentially veto that all that work. Um, so these are the kind of attacks that we're seeing today. They're getting increasingly fierce um, and increasingly dangerous, really, for worker safety and health. Um, if, if, the Republicans, if the Republicans actually had control of both the Senate, the House, and the presidency, um, I shudder to think, you know, what would happen to OSHA and to workplace safety and to, you know, how many workers would end up, you know, getting hurt and killed because of that 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 change in, in administrations. You know, these are conversations that I have with with a lot of my union brothers and sisters and say, look, you know, the reality is it really does matter. Your health and safety matters on who you vote for. And Republicans have, have proven to me time and time again. Uh, that, well, as I say, Republicans hate working people. Look at what they do. And this is part of this. Now, as you pointed out, this was kind of nonpartisan. The fact that OSHA was was created during the Nixon era uh, mm -hmm. back in 1970, I could never, could never pass muster in the Republican Party today. No, and not only that, but I mean, there, I mean, with the Republican Party today, there is no standard that OSHA could ever issue that would be approved by the Republican Party. It just wouldn't happen. OSHA would be moribund. And the other thing is, I mean, this administration, although, you know, I, I do, I am highly critical of them for not issuing more standards, um, but on the enforcement side, they've done some great work. I mean, they have more um, high uh, value, I mean, high penalty cases, I think, than any other administration. I mean, the, the kind of big cases that OSHA, is so rare for OSHA being as their penalties are so low, but they, they can, you know, through various means, um, actually compile some pretty big cases. And they've done more of those in this administration. I think than any other administration, and um, that would obviously all go away too under a Republican administration. Yeah, well, there's, there's fertile ground, I believe, out there because of so long without having you know enforcement uh, during those four years of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look at the fact that everywhere I look now, I'm seeing more child labor violations. Uh, there's fertile ground for some enforcement. Uh, you know, we I have a friend who's a state representative out in in Iowa. He's on a construction site. You know, talking to construction workers, and there is a a a, a child worker working on a construction site in a job where he shouldn't be, standing right there in front of him. Yeah, and if that's you know, if you want to look back over the last last year, I mean, that has certainly been one of the major phenomena of the last year, and the, the most upsetting uh, things that we've seen is is the rise in in, in child labor um, and 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 kids getting hurt on the job. And probably more upsetting than that is you've seen a number of states, a number of Republican states that, have, that are trying to make it easier uh, to employ kids in dangerous work. Yeah. So it's, it's just incredible that you actually, you know, we're kind of going back. <laughs> not we're making to the child century, labor great again. the 19th century. We're making child labor great again, Jordan. Any good news, though? I mean, you know, we've been talking about the bad side, uh, things that the, the Biden folks haven't done, anything that, that they have done. Well, again, the the uh, enforcement has been great. I mean, they've done some very good work in terms of um, higher penalties and really getting to the big companies, the big uh, lawbreakers like Amazon, for example. They've done some very aggressive work there. Um, so that that is certainly very commendable. And, and again, something that only happens uh, in, in in democratic administrations. Um, so that's been that's that certainly is is probably one of the major things that uh, you know we can look look toward. Um, um, hopefully, continuing, but certainly yeah. something uh, great that's happened there. Um, you know, OSHA's tried to do some good stuff in terms of infectious diseases and COVID. And I, I will say also with my criticism about OSHA uh, not issuing any standards, they were kind of handicapped for at least the first year and a half with COVID and not being able to do much of anything uh, aside sure. from that. Also, um, they're making progress on heat. I mean, both in terms of a standard, although it'll be a long time before something gets issued, but doing some general duty clause uh, citations, which they can do even without a standard. Um, and they're at least focused on that. I mean, I mean, we're, what we're seeing now, and we has become especially pronounced over the last year, are all kinds of hazards, new hazards, more or less new, at least newly severe hazards that are the result of climate change. I mean, you see heat, um, um, smoke from from fires, um, more floods, you know, hurricanes. All of this stuff, um, um, you know, is is a result of climate change, and all of this is making it more dangerous uh, in the workplace in many areas. Um. Also, you point out in your piece that uh, that in the spring of 24, 
we can look for MSHA to, to have some some new revised silica standards coming. Because uh, as you write, and this is this is frightening, uh, you yeah. write coal miners are experiencing a sharply rising rate of very severe form of black lung disease. Um, I thought we did something on all of this at one point during the the the, the Obama years. Well, yeah, and that's yeah. This is what's so crazy. So we did in the Obama administration, we issued a silica standard, but that applies to general industry like foundries, and it applies to construction. So the people, you know, sawing up the concrete, uh, concrete sidewalks. So, so we did issue a very good standard that will protect those workers to the extent they're complied with. MSHA is another agency; deals just with miners, and uh, they have a different, you know, different formula. They have still not issued, uh, you know, updated silica, uh, updated silica standard, and that is um, killing, literally killing miners. Um, you know, more and more of mining now is done. You don't have, you know, the 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 same thick seams of coal, so they're drilling more and more into rock, which means a lot of silica exposure, and you're finding. Uh, you know, just high numbers of young miners that are that are getting these extremely uh, severe lung conditions. You know what we used to just call black lung, but but is really um, uh, become a very severe form of black lung, which is mainly the result of silica. And MSHA has been working on that uh, for many years, and that is one standard that they have scheduled to be issued uh, early next year. I'm somewhat skeptical because I, you know, from what I hear, they have a lot more work to do on that. Uh, the other problem is that um, you know, which we haven't really mentioned here, is that there is something called the uh, Congressional Review Act, which if 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 um, Republicans can control both the House, the Senate, and the White House, they can actually repeal uh, any OSHA or MSHA regulation that's issued after about March of the election year. So if MSHA doesn't get that silica standard out, uh, you know, by the end of March, roughly uh, next year, then it is vulnerable to being repealed by the Republicans if they take back, you know, both houses of Congress and the White House. Um, but anyway, if they do, if they can get that out, it will be enormously uh, beneficial for miners and will hopefully, uh, if it's actually able to be enforced uh, effectively, um, will cut significantly uh, the rate of this very severe black lung that is killing so many young miners now. And it'll save people's lives. Finally, I want to get your thoughts on the coming year. Any any optimism for the coming year? Any thoughts? That, <laughs> uh, look, you know, we, we we spend so much time talking about, you know, people being killed on the job and all of the, the failures out there. Any Anything we're looking forward to in the new year? Well, again, it, I mean, it depends on how the election goes. Um, you know, if, 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 if the forces of fascism win, uh, that will be bad for workers. It'll be bad for all workers, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. It will be bad for their, I mean, it will, it will literally reduce the chances uh, workers have of coming home alive, safe, and healthy at the end of the workday. So, um, you know, if we can, you know, beat, beat that back, uh, if, if Biden has a second term, yeah, then there's a lot to look forward to. I mean, hopefully the, all the work they've done, you know, in this administration in terms of the regulatory process and getting these important standards out uh, will pay off uh, over the next four years if they can, you know, again, if we can, if they can just push forward with that and, you know, hopefully we can control, you know, Congress and and uh, and the White House. Um, um, you know, the other problem that OSHA has, and we're, we're seeing more and more, is, is, of course, budget problems. So even with the, the best will of the president, if they don't have any money to do this yeah. stuff, if Congress keeps cutting them back, um, it's going to be difficult. But I'm, I'm hoping, you know, optimistic, if we take back the House next time, if we manage to hold on to the Senate, um, you know, then uh, then we, we can look forward to, uh, I think, four years of, of progress on the health and safety front. Um, but, you know, it could just as easily be catastrophe for workers. And that's why it's you know very important, I think, for working people in this country to understand the stakes uh, in this election. And, you know, from my perspective, particularly the stakes in terms of uh, workers' health and safety uh, over the over the next years. Uh, your vote could be could be the difference between life and death. Literally, Jordan, literally. I appreciate you taking time for us. Uh, I, I'd like to say good stuff, but you know, it is what it is. Jordan, it I is. appreciate the time. Okay, thanks a lot, Rick. Uh, our good friend Jordan Barab. I, I got to tell you, it, it does. It matters who we vote for uh, in this upcoming election. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, Rick at the Rick Smith Show.com. I'm going to take a quick break. Right back after this. Stick around. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1903. That was the day prominent civil rights activist Ella Baker was born in Norfolk, Virginia. Her parents moved to Littleton, North Carolina when she was young. 
She often listened to her grandmother's stories of slave revolts and of the brutality she endured under slavery. Ella attended the historically black college Shaw University, graduating in 1927. After college, she moved to New York City and worked as a journalist. Ella was profoundly impacted by the Harlem Renaissance and became an educator for the WPA, teaching African and labor history. She immersed herself in the activism of the period and worked on the Scottsboro Boys Defense Campaign. By 1938, she had joined the NAACP, traveling across the country to direct membership recruitment, fundraising, and building of local branches. In 1952, Ella became president of New York City's NAACP chapter, working for desegregation and on police brutality cases. Baker went to Alabama to help found the Southern Christian Leadership Conference after the successful Montgomery bus boycott to organize voter registration drives throughout the South. From there, she formed and led the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Ella trained young, committed civil rights activists in a collectivist model of organizing and in participatory democracy. By 1964, she helped to organize the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party and its fight to become seated at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. She was involved in the defense of activist and friend Anne Braden, then targeted by HUAC, and later the Free Angelina Movement in defense of then-jailed activist Angelina Davis. She was instrumental in the founding of the Third World Women's Alliance and supported various independence movements throughout the world. She died on her birthday in 1986. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I got to tell you, you know, the more I talk with Jordan, the, the more concerned I am about 2024. Because the stakes are, are just, it's, it's not red hat, blue hat for me. It's, it's what happens to working people on the job every day. What, what, what does the workplace look like, again, in a Trump administration? Uh, you know, do we then have the people in charge of of the Department of Labor, of OSHA, of MSHA, of, of all of the, the things that uh, their job is to make sure that workers have a fair shake uh, put into the hands of, of corporatists? If you remember, uh, the first person they threw out as Secretary of Labor was a guy who was the CEO of a fast food chain who wanted to, to do away with all working people and have, you know, you know, kiosk type fast food restaurants. Uh, what was his name? Andy Puzder, the guy, former CEO of Carl's Jr. Uh, and then he ended up with a corporate lawyer, uh, the son of Antonin Scalia, Eugene Scalia, who fought against workers at every opportunity. So you fill these regulatory bodies with people who hate working people. And then we're surprised when government doesn't doesn't benefit us and this again i go back to the conversation i had with a with a with a worker just the other day who said look uh, you should be running for office we need we need people like you we need working people in the positions of power because when once i sit down and i explain this to people look these regulatory bodies we've been we've been sold this idea from the corporate controlled media and the the you know the big moneyed interest regulations are bad regulations are job killers and yet when you you boil down what we're talking about the fact that there isn't a silica standard to protect workers in coal mines even though for for generations black lung has been killing people and it's still not not a standard yet is insane to me. And again, it comes back to who we put into office. And as Jordan pointed out, you know, during Democratic administrations, they start moving forward on, hey, we're going to move this uh, this this regulation. We're going to move this standard. We're going to protect people. We're going to take care of workers in the workplace. Make sure that you know mom and dad get to come home at the the end of the day. Make sure that the number of people dying on the job you know goes down which OSHA has done a great job of. Do all this work only to have a Republican administration come in and say, nope, we're throwing it all out. And it's this kind of weird ebb and flow where, okay, we were moving, marching towards something that could help. Oh, so close. 
only to have it quashed and thrown out into the trash heap of history. And for me, this is the stuff that I vote on. And, you know, I, I don't get into, you know, who, who's better looking. I don't get into who had the best zinger at the, uh, at the debate. I say, who's going to, going to make sure that when I go to work, I'm safe? Who's going to be the person who ensures that uh, the union contract I get is enforced and I'm able to get one? Who's going to make it better for me to put food on the table and keep a roof over my kid's head? Not, oh, who, who talks like I do? What a stupid standard to vote for somebody. And I've heard this from, you know, going back to the Bush years. I'd like to have a beer with him. He's a guy I'd like to have a beer. I don't want to have a beer with the guy who I want to be president. I want that guy to be smart. I want that guy to have a vision. I want that guy to understand the regulatory bodies and how they work and how they make lives better. That's what I want. I want somebody who's a whole lot smarter than, I just want to have a guy, a beer with the guy because he talks like I do. I, I got to tell you, I think we should be, I think we should be asking better. Uh, because look, you know, <laughs> you've got the, 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 the Lauren Boberts of the world who somehow have found their way into Congress. And look, I would love it if Lauren Boebert actually gave a tinker's damn about any working person. She has proven to not time and time again. What legislation has she moved that's going to make our lives better? Nothing but gun fetish Barbie. You know what she can do? She can get attention. And that attention distracts us from the, the sad reality that we're not getting what we need. We're not getting a government that works for the people. We're not getting a government of, by, and for the people. We're getting a government of corporate interests. The fact that we haven't regulated a silica standard in coal mines tells you just how powerful that lobby is. And the weird thing is, and I remember, you know, it's got to be 10 years now, at least. Well, more than that, probably 12, 14. When the the coal mine, well, I guess it was, wow, it's been a long time. Um, they were trying to take away the health care that miners are guaranteed. Uh, because, look, we said, you know, back in the 40s, you know, coal miners go down into the mines, pull that energy that we desperately need out of the ground, knowing that you're going to get sick, knowing that this is probably going to kill you. Uh, and bring us the energy we need, and we will take care of you. Well, they were trying to take that away from people. They were trying to take it away. And I remember back then talking to miners and them going, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the both sides suck. No, it's the Republicans who are trying to take it from you. It's corporate America who's trying to take it from you. There's no both sidesism here. And this is where we've got to take off our red hats and our blue hats and start looking at who's going to make sure that when we go to work, that we're compensated, that we're safe. That's my thought. I want to hear yours. Email me, Rick at the Rick Smith Uh, this is just one of those, this is one of those issues for me. It's a big one. Also, if you miss any portion of the program, grab the podcast. Thanks for being here. We'll see you back here next You've time. You've been listening to the Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at Rick at the Rick Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1924. That was the day that longtime leader of the American Federation of Labor, Samuel Gompers, died. Gompers was born to a Jewish family in England. He was a cigar maker by trade. Gompers became involved with the labor movement at a very young age. He joined the Cigar Makers Local Union Number 15 when he was just 14 years old. He became the head of the newly formed AFL in 1886, a position he held until 1894. A year later, he once again became president of the AFL and remained in that seat until his death. Under his leadership, the AFL became the leading labor organization in the United States. The AFL focused the strength of its organizing on skilled workers and tradesmen. 
The main emphasis of the union was winning better wages, hours, and working conditions for its membership. Some in the labor movement thought Gomper's approach was too conservative. The Industrial Workers of the World was formed in 1905 with a goal to reach out with the union message beyond skilled workers. Once Gompers was asked, what does labor want? His response still has relevance today. What does labor want? We want more schoolhouses and less jails, more books and less arsenals, more learning and less vice, more leisure and less greed, more justice and less revenge. In fact, more of the opportunities to cultivate our better natures, to make manhood more noble, womanhood more beautiful, and childhood more happy and bright. In 2007, a statue of Samuel Gompers was unveiled at a park named after the labor leader in Chicago. Gompers was one of the most significant figures in the U.S. labor movement. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money. 